Father in heaven, we come before you thanking you for the privilege of being able to study your word and to be able to learn how to be effective evangelists for you. We just pray that you will be with us this afternoon. We had our lunch, and we thank you that we are physically filled. We pray that we'll be spiritually filled in a way that we can give to, you, to others. Thank you, God, for each person who is here. In Jesus' name, amen. Right. What we're going to do is we're going to go out to the parables, Luke chapter 15, as we look at search for the lost, Luke chapter 15. And there are three parables in Luke chapter 15 that's important for us to know regarding evangelism. So you want to go to Luke chapter 15. And hopefully this topic, it's going to cover how to witness to different kinds of people. Because as you know, there are different kinds of people, uh, different people, different places in life. Some of them have absolutely no spiritual interest. Some of them don't even know they're lost. So we're going to be looking at first identifying the different people who are lost. The next session, we're going to be covering um, what do you do? How do you witness to someone who maybe has grown up in the church uh, or who is a Seventh-day Adventist and who doesn't care? versus someone who's not a Seventh-day Adventist. So we're going to look at, from the Bible, a couple of references, and then we're going to talk about the importance of sharing your personal testimony, and we have a worksheet for that as well. So Luke chapter 15, verse 1, the Bible says, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he spoke this parable unto them, saying. So Luke chapter 15, verse 1 and 2 tells us the very beginning. And publicans, sinners, were considered the lowest of society. And Luke goes and he starts, the, he starts Luke 15 off by telling us the people Jesus is speaking to. And it's interesting because when it says he receives them and eats with them, eating with someone in the time of... Palestine was a very intimate affair. You wouldn't just eat with anyone. You would eat with those who are closing a business transaction with. You'd eat with your family. You'd eat with your friends because mealtimes typically took hours. And it wasn't the normal TV dinners that you and I have today. It was very methodical, uh, much, there's tons of food. And the way that you would eat, there wasn't the normal tables. You would recline, you'd almost be laying down. And it was an intimate affair where you were with people and you would talk and you, they'd be there for hours. In today's society, when I say, hey, come for lunch, in your head, I'm going to budget maybe an hour to maybe two hours at the most. But then I know he's busy. I know I'm busy. It wasn't like that back then. Back then, it was, I'm eating with you and I'm going to be there all day. It was an all-day affair. So that's the context when it says that he received sinners and he ate with them. Verse 3. Um, verse uh, 3, it says he spoke parables to the Pharisees and the scribes, hopefully so they would understand what they were supposed to be doing, and that is searching for the loss. Verse 4, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he finds it? Jesus starts off with this parable because sheep were very precious to the Jews, especially to the Pharisees. Many of them had side businesses, and if you had a sheep, it meant lots of money as well. And of course, we know the story when Jesus turned over the tables at the temple. We know that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had a part in that, and you know, they received a cut. And in this, in this parable, Jesus starts off by hitting something that strikes to the core. He's telling them, how many of you, I know you all love your animals, I know you love your sheep specifically, if you lost one, how many of you would leave that and go find it? And so he's hitting a chord. Verse 5, And when he finds it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. Now, this is what I want you to do as you are studying this parable. As we are going through this, what I want you to do is I want you to, just for a moment, think of all three of the parables. So we're going to be reading three parables. I want you to see what do they have in common, what is different, and how can we apply it to our life. 
So we're going to be looking at three parables. I'm going to give you the answers at the very end, but see if you are a good Bible student. See if you can catch it. Three parables here. What is common? What's the common denominator in all three parables? What is different, and how can we apply it to our lives? Okay? So the first one is the lost sheep. That's the first parable. Let's go to the next one. Uh, excuse me, let me read verse 7. I say unto you likewise, joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repents more than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. I love reading that, that, this passage. And every time I've fallen short, every time that I have sinned, every time I, f- I have felt like quitting in the past, I go back to these stories and I think of what the Bible says when it says, I am happier when you have fallen and come back to me versus you, someone who just stays perfect and good and happy. And that for me is precious. And, and we know what Ellen White sh- says. She says that because of the experience we had, because of sin, and we're not excusing sin, but because of what has happened with sin and Jesus had to come down and experience what we experience, we will have a closer bond to Jesus than any other angelic being. Do you know how precious that is? That through the fall, that something beautiful can come from something so despicable, something so nasty, that we would be closer. You have angelic beings who've been with Jesus for eons, and here we are. We've never been with Jesus per se. We've never ate lunch with him. We've never hung out with him uh, in the physical realm. You know, we've just had a by faith experience. But because we would have a similar experience, when we go to heaven, we will be closer to God and to Jesus than the angels. And that is precious. So every time you're, dis- anytime you're discouraged, you think about falling or giving up, go back to these parables and look how it says there is joy in heaven when you repent, when you come back. The next story we see is about a lost coin. Luke chapter 15, verse 8. Remember your assignment, three parables. What is the same? What is different? Luke chapter 15, verse 8. Either what woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, does not light a candle and sweep the house and seek it diligently until she finds it. Now here is something fascinating here. According to this parable, it says... Or what woman? Now, I know that many of you are students of Bible prophecy. In Bible prophecy, what does a woman represent? Church, right? Okay. So let's just say for a moment, let's just say that that means church. Now, having 10 silver coins, what in the Bible can you think of? What do you think of when I say the number 10? Exodus chapter 20. Ten commandments, right? So 10 commandments. Then it says, if she loses one coin, does she not light a what? Lamp. Lamp. Okay, what is lamp in the Bible? What what is the symbol for? Christ. Christ? The word, right? The word. Psalms 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light upon my way, right? So if we substitute these things, could it be possible that there is a church, loses one of the commandments, this commandment is lost, And this church searches the scriptures to find this lost commandment. And we know that that really happened, right? We know that there was a commandment that's lost, a Sabbath commandment. And it was in, uh, you know, the 1700s and 1800s and the whole Millerite movement. They, w- they began to search the scriptures. Knowledge increased to and fro, and that refers to the, to the Bible. And as they searched the scriptures, they found that there was a commandment that they have been missing, that they haven't been uh, following. And of course, we know what happens when this woman, when she finds that lost coin. What does she do when she finds the lost coin? That's right. So what should we be doing? We should be telling about everyone about the Sabbath commandment, right? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Two parables so far. We have a sheep. We have a coin. I don't know if you caught what is common, what is different, how can we apply it? So keep that in mind. 
We're going to go to our last one, then I'm going to give you a minute or so, see if you have you caught what is different. The last parable is my favorite one. I'm sure that many of us can relate to it. Luke chapter 15, it's also one of the longest parables in the Bible. Verse 11, and a man has, uh, had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me, and he divides unto them his living. He's basically saying, give me your will now. I don't want to spend it when I'm old. I want to spend it now. And I think a lot of people, a lot of young people can relate to that. Hey, I'm young. I'm attractive. Why do I have to serve God now? Why can't I go out on my own, do my own thing? And then once I'm older, I can jump back into the church, right? Verse 13, and, many, and not many days after the younger son gathered all together, took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there was a, a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he went himself into the field to feed swine. And he would have filled his belly with a husk of the swine, uh, but no man would give it to him. And when he, came to, when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise to go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. I don't know if you caught the story here. There's a young man, and this would probably be a modern-day picture of what a prodigal son would look like. He tells his father and says, Father, I know you have a lot of property. I know you have a lot of wealth. Give me my will now. I know that I, I'm entitled to 50% of what you have. Cash it out. I want it now. His father does it, and he, he takes off. And this young man goes and spends his, his life in righteous li riotous living, is what the Bible says. And there was a famine, and he's now down to nothing. And as he's down to nothing, he becomes a field worker. And as he's a field worker feeding swine, doing the unthinkable, as a Jew, that was the worst thing that you could do, was feed swine. They were unclean animals. He comes up with a plan. And his plan is, I know what I'm going to do. Plan A, I'm going to go home and I'm going to say, Father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. This is what I'll say next. He, he actually formulates this plan. I could picture him sitting down with the pigs. And as he's feeding the pigs, he goes through this. Maybe he rehearses what he's going to say a few times. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. I know. I've messed up. Let me be just a hired help, and I'll be happy. At least they're fed good. They have a place to stay. And he goes home. And as he goes home, he's a long way off. We know the story. As he is a long way off, that's when we see the father coming up to him, the father embracing him. The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and prepare a feast so we can celebrate. There's rejoicing again with this story. So we have three stories. Three things are lost a person, a coin, and an animal. They all are found. Did anyone catch the differences, similarities, and how we can apply it? Did anyone figure it out? What are some differences? Anyone figure out some of the differences so far? Anyone want to share? Go ahead. Do you have one? Well, the sheep was searched for, the coin was sought after, and the son was uh, re repented. Good. So you can see that in two of the stories, did you catch that? In two of the stories, the person who lost it, they went out actively searching for it. And there's a reason for that we're going to get to. Whereas when one of the, in one of the st uh, stories, the last one, the father doesn't go out to the city and search for him. And that's a real important principle. I'm glad you caught that. Anyone catch anything else? Oh, that's good. That's good. There's reasons for all of those things, yeah. Anyone else, anything? So did you catch all what, what was in common? What was the one thing in common? Everyone catch that part. Okay, good. Something lost and found and then rejoicing. So in all three of the stories, the common thing was lost, 
found and rejoicing. It didn't matter how small the object was or how big the object was, there was always rejoicing. Okay, so here's, I made a little table for you to, so you can see this. Hopefully this will, will help you. What do these three stories have in common and what are different? Okay, so here's what I, here's what I came up with. The lost sheep knew it was lost, but it couldn't, it doesn't know how to go back home, right? We know that, right? The sheep are dumb animals, and I, and I say that kindly. I like sheep, but I'm, I'm using common vernacular, I'm using common language. They're known as dumb animals. In other words, you're not going to have a movie of a sheep that finds its way home like Homeward Bound, right? When a sheep is lost, it's smart enough to know that it's lost. It realizes that none of his friends, none of his family members are near. But the sheep cannot find its way back, okay? The lost coin, on the other hand, the lost coin is an object that doesn't have life, of course. So the lost coin does not know that it's lost. And of course, the lost coin doesn't know how to get its way back into the penny jar. So doesn't know it's lost and can't get back. Now here's the unique thing about the lost son. The lost son is very different. Number one, the lost son made a choice to be lost, knew it was lost, and also knew it was back home, uh, knew its way back home. So lost son made a choice to be lost. The lost son knew that he was lost. And the lost son, he knows the way back home. So as you can see, this is what we came up with. And these are the three different categories of people. Someone is a lost sheep. Someone is a lost coin. And someone is a lost son. And what do I mean by that? There are people out there and we knock on a lot of doors, they know they're lost. Uh, if any of you have ever canvassed or have knocked on doors, you knock on someone's door and they, were, they say, oh, I was praying for someone. You know, that's such a precious experience. That's when they say, I was praying that someone would knock on my door. But the thing is, they don't know where to go. And when we give them books, they say, you know, I was praying that God would show me the right way. I was praying that God would show me the right path. I was praying that he would show me the right church, and, and you came to my door. That's an example of someone who knew they were lost, but they didn't know the way back. They didn't know what was truth. They didn't know what church to go to. Then you have the people out there who have no idea they're lost. And you've met those people, right? You've knocked on their doors. And you ask them the question, do you think you're going to heaven? Oh, yeah, I'm a good person, right? So there, there are people who they have no idea that they're lost. They have no concept that they have a need. And number two, of course, they have no idea where to go. And so you have those type of people. Don't know they're lost. Don't know how to get back. Then you have the lost son. These are usually Seventh-day Adventist kids, right? <laughs> They make a conscious choice to leave. Mom and dad, that's your religion. I'm going to go out and do my own thing. And they go out in the world, and when they're experimenting out in the world, they know that they're lost. Something just isn't right. And if you ever had that experience, that was me. I'm the lost son. And the thing is this. They know the way back home. No one needs to tell me how to get to Loma Linda. I knew how to get there. No one needed to tell me how to go to a local Seventh-day Adventist church. I knew where to go. I knew how to look it up. It's interesting because in this small little parable, we can see what to do in regards to the different kinds of people. Um, for the lost sheep, we have to go out and find them, and we have to tell them the, tr the truth. We have to show them the way back. For someone who doesn't know their loss, many times we have to first let them see their need, let them know uh, their need of a Savior, let them know that they... Um, that they are, there's no one righteous, not one. They may think they're a good person, but the Bible says, look, no one's righteous. And then the last one is the lost son. That's where we stand back and we pray. That's what my mother did with me. 
And the beautiful thing about this, every single time, the lost sheep, lost coin, lost son, doesn't matter. Every time something is found or someone is found, there's always rejoicing. It's a beautiful thing about this. Uh, what I've also put on there, the Bible talks about three specific methods of evangelism. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more, especially in the next session about your testimony. But in Luke chapter 8, verse 38 and 39, there's a story of the demoniac. Many of you know the story. The demoniac is healed. He says, I want to go with you, Jesus. I have no one here. I'm going to be by myself. And Jesus says, no, you need to go back and tell everyone what I've done for you, right? We know what happens. The demoniac does that. It says he publishes. Um, he shares. And so there is a method of publishing. There's a method of telling. There's using media. There's, there's a methods of evangelism. And what I find is when it comes to publishing or handing people literature and different things, that's very effective for, for people who they don't even know their loss. Give them a piece of literature. Hey, you know, I just... It was good talking to you, this whole uh, entire plane ride. Let me give you something, just something for you to read, right? For someone who they know that they're lost, I find that one-on-one experiences, such as um, for me, when I, when I knew that I was lost, when someone would have me over at their house, when there was events, when they, when they would take me out to dinner, when they would share with me that that was effective in my life. Uh, in Mark chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, that's the story of Levi Matthew. And I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but Jesus calls Levi to follow him. And do you remember what Levi said? I'll take you there. This one's not as common. Go to Mark 2, verse 14 and 15. So I know you're taking notes, but go to Mark chapter 2. I know that you're all familiar with the demoniac, so you can just put that down as a reference. But Mark chapter 2 tells the story of Levi Mark chapter 2, we know that Mark was the first gospel written. Chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Here's what the Bible says. And as he passed by, this is Jesus passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, follow me. Verse 15. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house... Many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. What I see in verse 15, it's almost as if Levi Matthew says, I will follow you, Jesus. I have one request. Can we have a sit-down dinner? And I'm going to invite a lot of my friends. I'm going to at least make an announcement. I'm going to tell them what I'm going to do. I'm going to let them know I'm resigning from my job. I'm resigning as publican, and we're going to have this nice little feast. And can you share with them. So Levi couldn't share. He didn't even have much of a testimony at this point, but he knew that he should follow the voice of God. So he does that. He invites his friends over, and Jesus is the one. He shares, and it says after that, people followed after Jesus shared. So that's a very fascinating story. So what I find is um, face-to-face, one-on-one, dinners, events, things that you can do with others, that's another method. Friendship evangelism, if you want to call it. Those are, that's helpful for people who they know that they're lost, but they don't know the way back. I remember when I was working in business, and I was working for a Fortune 500 company or a, a small consulting firm. What I would do is I would, the way that I would witness to them is I would let them know a little bit about what I did, let them know about my beliefs, and many of them had questions. Hey, so what happens after you die? Or can you tell me a little bit about what's going on in the world? Why does it seem like there's a lot of social unrest? And I was able to share with them a little bit from the Bible. And of course, the last one, and this I find is effective for people who they know their loss and they know the way home. The way you witness to them is through your testimony. If you have a living example, you see a lot of people, they know everything. The people who, are, who make the decision to leave, to rebel, who are out in the world, they who've grown up at Seventh-day Adventists, they know the precious truths that we have. So there's nothing new that you're going to really tell them. And so what for me was impactful, the way someone witnessed to me was by their testimony, how they lived their life. 
And we're going to go through this later on. This talks about John chapter 4. Okay, so with that, what we're going to do is we are now going to look at some tips on giving a Bible study, how to give a Bible study. We, we went through that packet yesterday, and then we're going to talk about gaining, uh, gaining decisions for God. How do we gain decisions for Him? And that's the packet. So I want you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 is one of my favorite passages in the Gospels uh, for many reasons. But part of it is because this is the passage where we see Jesus giving a Bible study. So Luke chapter 24, many of us know it as the walk to Emmaus. Luke chapter 24. And let's go ahead and start in verse 13. Luke 24, verse 13. Luke 24, verse 13. Here's what the Bible says. So now that we have identified the different people who are lost, we've also come up with a few ways of witnessing to them. We're going to be looking at Jesus' method of Bible study and also how to bring them to a decision. Okay, So that's what we're going to do the rest of this seminar. The Bible says, And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about three score furlongs. A few hours' journey was the length of time. When I was in India, they had a... I, by the way, if any of you go to India, there's a city called Bangalore. That's the new Silicon Valley in, in, in India. And there is a museum or an exhibit you have to go to. It's called Bible World. And what they've done is they have transformed this place into a Bible exhibit. They show many different versions, many translations, famous quotes by famous people, presidents about the Bible. The most, probably one of the most fascinating things about the exhibit was there was a 3D map that they had. And the map was about half the size of this room. So imagine about half the size of this room. It's a 3D map on the life of Christ and his journey. And so they show where Emmaus is, they show where Jerusalem was, so they showed how far it was. And so I took a picture of it, didn't have time to put it up on this thing, but it was a few hours journey away. And I imagine this, this story, now remember, this is Resurrection Sunday. The, Jesus is fresh from just being raised from the dead. He's appeared to Mary, and there's a couple of disciples and they're walking to Emmaus for whatever reason. They're walking back to their hometown. They were in Jerusalem for the Passover. They're going back to Emmaus. And then Jesus decides to tag along. Luke 24, verse 13 and 14. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. Verse 15, it came to pass that while they were talking together and reasoning, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Now this has got to be an amazing scene if you think about it. Think of two guys, two friends, they're talking, conversing with each other. Yeah, couldn't you believe what happened? I can't believe Jesus was crucified. I can't believe, I mean, I thought that he was going to take over the Romans. So they're talking with each other. And Jesus comes behind them, and I could almost, if I'm imagining it, he's cloaked. You can't see his face. He draws near. Verse 16, but their eyes were holding that they should not know him. There was something interesting. I don't know if he was covered. I don't know if he, what his voice was like, but they, just, they didn't recognize him. Verse 17, by the way, if you didn't know this already, Jesus has a sense of humor. Uh, there have been many times the disciples, they're out fishing, and they're, they caught nothing. And Jesus said, hey, have you guys caught anything? And he knows that they haven't caught anything, right? Um, in this sp specific story, Jesus asked them, hey, what are you guys talking about? He knows already, right? He's been following behind. He knows what they're talking about. He says in verse 17, what are you talking about? And why do you walk and look so sad? In verse 18, one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered and said unto him, aren't you the only person in Jerusalem and have not known the things which have come to pass in these days? He says, have you been hiding under a rock? The whole world knows what has happened. Jesus, the Christ, has been crucified. He, he's, he's dead. And have you, you didn't know this? Verse 19. And, and this is where I, I see Jesus' sense of humor. And he said unto them, What things? 
Like, tell me what things happened. I want to hear your side. I want to hear your, what you have to say. And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which is a prophet mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death, and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he would have been redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since all these things were done. Yes, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they, they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so, as the woman had said. But him they saw not. And he's right there. That is, I, you know, the irony of this story <laughs> is amazing. Verse 25, Jesus said, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then verse 27, this is the most important part. How did Jesus give a Bible study? Beginning at Moses, what does that mean, everyone? Yeah, the first five books, uh, he starts in the very beginning. Beginning at Moses, all the way to the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning... All right, so there is the theme of the Bible. The theme of the Bible is this right here. We know this passage, search the scriptures, for these are they which what? I used to think that the Old Testament was boring. And it's funny because when it says search the scriptures, what is John referring to here? The New Testament is not yet made yet. It's not compiled. When he says search the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. When we quote 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, all scripture is given, what is it referring to? The Old Testament. In context, every time you see the word scriptures, even in the New Testament, it's referring to the Old Testament. It's interesting because we have a lot of our evangelical friends saying, you shouldn't read the Old Testament, it's part of the Old Covenant, it's done away with, it's old. But you read the New Testament, and every single time you read the New Testament and talks about scriptures, it's referring to the Old Testament. Now, I used to think that the Old Testament was boring until I finally understood the theme of the Old Testament. And the theme of the Old Testament is this. These are they, the Old Testament, which does, what, what do they do? They testify of me. In fact, I'm planning on sharing this tomorrow night. But the entire scriptures is a testimony of Jesus Christ. Anytime you see a story in the Old Testament, we are to ask ourselves, how do we see Jesus in this story? That itself is a fascinating uh, study in itself, is to see Jesus in the Old Testament. How do we see Jesus in the ark? How do we see Jesus through the story of Samson? How do we see Jesus in the story of Joseph? Every single Bible story, all the main characters in story, the theme is Jesus. And I'm going to talk more about that tomorrow evening. So we see the way that Jesus gave a study was he started in the very beginning and he went through the prophets. In other words, he went through the entire Bible. So here's some tips when preparing for when, when doing Bible studies. Make sure you have Old Testament verses. Make sure you have New Testament verses. Make sure... It's a, you have um, stuff in the middle from the prophets. Make sure you have stuff in the Psalms. What Jesus did is he expounded about himself. He gave a Bible study. How I wish I could have been there to hear Jesus give a Bible study. And he started in the Old Testament. He started in the very beginning. It's interesting because if you do a Bible study, try to start in the very beginning. For example, the Sabbath. Some people make the mistake of going to Exodus chapter 20 first. No, where should you go first? Genesis chapter 2. What about State of the Dead? Where should you go first? G Genesis chapter 2 as well, right? Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. What does it say? The Lord God made man. What did he do? He got the dust of the ground, breathed through his nostrils, the breath of life. So you can show, in order for you to understand the state of the dead, first you have to understand the composition of man, Right? When you look at the crucifixion story and salvation, where should you go first? Where is the first prophecy in the Bible? Genesis, Genesis 3.15, right? Do you see how all our doctrines, we can line them up, we can find them 
in Genesis. Let's just say you're going over the health message. Where do you go in Genesis? Chapter 1, verse 27, right? Talking about the original diet. All of our doctrines, we can trace it back to the very beginning. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's telling them and expounding them, sharing a Bible study from the very beginning. All right, let's go ahead and look at our worksheet now as we are running out of time. How do we get, how do we gain decisions for Jesus? This is your worksheet. Um, maybe Spencer, you can see if anyone needs one. Hopefully everyone has one. I think I gave them to you just in case. Just in case we have some. Okay. So the first part is reasons to lead people to make decisions. So now that we talked a little bit about preparing a Bible study in the last session, and now we know that the theme of the Bible is Jesus, and now we should formulate the cross, we should talk about, uh, we should have the very beginning, going back to Genesis and the Old Testament, whenever we do a Bible study. The most important thing about a Bible study is to, to get decisions, right? So now we're going to talk about getting decisions. Reasons to lead people to make decisions. A, truth is freshest right after hearing it. So truth is most fresh right after hearing it. Truth is fresh right after hearing it. So you can just write the word fresh. So you want me, people to make decisions when they hear truth. The moment they hear truth, they're ready to accept. They're ready to hear. They've been uh, turned on intellectually. You know, they've been touched emotionally. We're going to get to that later. B, Satan works hard to lead their, fill in the blank, thoughts away. If you don't lead them to make a decision immediately, Satan is going to be just like the birds in the parable of the sower and the seed that takes away the seed that you've just planted. C, we know this one, conviction may disappear with time. Conviction may disappear with time. If people don't make a decision immediately, what's going to happen is, let's just say you talk about the Sabbath with Mrs. Jones. If she doesn't make a decision to follow and to keep the Sabbath, the next time you speak to her, there's nothing new you can really share with her. She's been convicted already. She's ignored that conviction. Uh, you haven't asked for a, a decision. And so now it's like, oh, yeah, the Sabbath, I know about that. Yeah, this person shared it with me, you know. Uh, but right now things are just not good with work, and I just got to work right now. It's usually what I hear. D, if you don't get decisions right away, um, decisions, that word is D, decisions may be turned to another church or direction. If you don't ask for a decision, someone else will. And they'll make a decision for God or they'll make a decision for another church. So make sure you understand that if you don't win them for Christ, guess who's also watching? Who's our adversary? Who's out there like a roaring lion, right? Seeking whom he may devour. You better believe that he has some other uh, weird religious organization ready to knock on that door and to call people for a decision. E, if we don't get people to make decisions immediately, it says relatives or other church members may confuse them. Relatives or other church members may confuse them. I find this uh, common. Uh, all the evangelistic series that I do, some people, they say, you know what, before I make a decision, uh, let me just go ahead and ask uh, my, you fill in the blank, boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, etc. Now think about it. You have just given this woman a study on the Sabbath, and she is going to ask her husband, her parents, who have not heard this material, imagine what they're going to say. They're going to confuse her. So what I say is, you know, Mrs. Johnson, Jesus wants you to make a decision right now. Is this clear from the Bible? Don't follow what man says. Make a decision today. Because the moment she makes a decision, now she can talk to them. She's already made a decision. But if she holds off on that decision, and, and instead she, she says, well, let me get their opinion, she can easily be swayed. She can be swayed or confused or all of the above. And then F, and this happens all the time as well, circumstances. 
may put them beyond your reach. I can't tell you how many times we've done an evangelistic series and someone who has not made a decision, who's on the cusp of decision, this happened to me in Turlock when I was preaching a series, this person who was so ripe and we were going to call this person to make a decision, all of a sudden they had to go to jail. You know, they were avoiding the officers and they had to serve, they didn't serve, and now that they're giving their life to God, uh, they get pulled over, and as they get pulled over, it turns out, oh, you should be in jail. That's happened to me multiple times. So understand that the devil, again, is out there. Circumstances may put them beyond your reach. All right, three factors that hinder people from making a full decision for Christ. So now that we know the reasons to lead people to make a decision, what are three factors that hinder people from making a full decision for Christ? Number one, people tend to hesitate accepting some truth because they don't understand all the truth. So the first one, why don't people make a decision? They don't understand. So it's your job, it's my job to help them understand these truths, okay? Encourage them by taking baby steps. Help them act on what they know and God will bring understanding to further truths. So encourage them to take baby steps. If they don't understand uh, things right away, uh, if I'm doing a study on, let's just say the second coming, what I'll do is I'll take baby steps. Hey, is it clear that Jesus comes uh, visibly and all will see him? If, if for whatever reason they're misunderstanding the whole secret rapture and they're misunderstanding me explaining um, the whole story of Noah and who's taken, the righteous taken, or the wicked are left behind, if they're missing that point, you go back to the baby step and you ask them a very simple question. Go to the most simple verse and say, Revelation chapter 1 isn't it clear when it says all will see him? So make sure to, to bring them to baby steps, okay? Number two, people tend to put off changes that make them feel uncomfortable. Why don't people make decisions immediately? It's because they don't want to make decisions that will make them feel uncomfortable. Think about it. Imagine your entire life you've been told that when someone dies, they go to heaven. And you have peace of mind that when your, your grandmother died that she's in a better place. And now you have to accept the truth that she's not in heaven, that she's just sleeping? That's uncomfortable. The reason why people don't make decisions immediately is because they don't want to feel uncomfortable. So what do you do? Explain the danger of delay. The longer we wait in making decisions... We know that we should make the less likely we are to make it. So let them know, Mrs. Johnson, you know, God is asking you to make a decision now. It's absolutely imperative that we understand this point. Do you agree with it? Is everything clear? Is there something that, that um, I need to clarify? Number three, again, factors that hinder people from making full decision for Christ. Number three, people tend to exaggerate the negative consequences of their decisions. What I mean by that is so, so many people have heard um, such negative things, especially regarding God's character. If you don't do this, fire and brimstone will happen. You will burn and burn and burn forever and ever and ever. So people have exaggerated consequences so much that now they're, they're weary of making decisions because they've heard people exaggerate uh, the consequences of, of, of making a, a, an immediate decision. When we give up what we cherish for the kingdom, God himself not only meets our needs, he gives us, much, gives us back much, much more. What I try to do is instead of, the, instead of um, exaggerating or instead of talking or dwelling on the negative consequences, letting them know about the positive, using positive reinforcement. Jesus loves you so much. What he wants to do is instead of you going, your grandmother going straight to heaven and watching you suffer and watching you go through all the sufferings that this world has, She's sleeping in Jesus. And so I try to focus on what are the positive things that I can do. ABCs of, of decision-making. So how can you get them to make decisions? So here's the ABCs of decision-making. A, number one is acceptance. Acceptance. Let people know that they will be accepted. That's why it's important um, when you, when I preach my evangelistic meetings and when I talk about the true church, you understand that Mrs. Johnson, who has been coming to your little church of 80 people, she thinks that this is the Adventist church. So what I try to do is then say, you know, the Seventh-day Adventist church 
It's a 20 million member church. It's in every single country around the world. Has, it's in more places, has, has one of the top education systems, hospital systems in all the world. I try to share these things to, our, uh, to, to Mrs. Johnson, who only sees this tiny little church in Podunk nowhere, right? And so you want them to feel accepted. So number one is I, I try to let them feel accepted. When you make this decision, Mrs. Johnson, you are saying yes, just like millions of people around the world are saying yes to the Sabbath and yes that they want to follow God. B, ABCs of decision-making. How can you help them to make a decision? A, letting them feel accepted. Number two, belief. It's amazing what you can do, uh, what, what someone will do when you show belief in them. When you say, uh, there have been many times I, I would close with this. I'd say, Mrs. Johnson, I know that you may need some time, uh, that this is some, some truth for you that you're hearing for the first time, but I believe you're going to make the right decision. I believe that you want to follow God and that you will follow the Bible and the Bible alone. Show belief in them and let them know you believe in them. Mrs. Johnson, I know you're going to do what's right. And of course, when you say those words, it's going to be very hard for them not to. And then finally, see confidence. Don't show an ounce of fear. If, if, if they're scared, if they say, well, I don't know what to do. I may lose my job. Don't show an ounce of fear. Show full confidence and assurance. Mrs. Johnson, we need to be confident of these very things, that he that began a good work in you will perform it to the very end. First John 5, 14 and 15, and we have this confidence in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Show absolute confidence. In no way show any type of weakness. This is a life or death decision. Okay, now how to bring them to a decision. Now here is the science behind making a decision. Number one, they need to be convinced with information. So number one, they need to see the information. This is where you mentally stimulate them. So how to bring them to a decision. You must have the necessary information. It must be mentally stimulating. It should uh, impact them um, intellectually. There are many times when I would go through a week of prayers and the speaker would call for a decision. How many of you want to give your heart to Jesus? How many of you want to give your heart to Him right now? And I remember I would stand up for some of those decisions, some of those week of prayers, and I believe they were genuine. But the problem is I didn't have the intellectual knowledge to back up my emotional decision that I made. So what you need to do is give them the intellectual knowledge, the scriptures. The reason why you're making this decision is because the Bible says so. Here, 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 and here. And you're going to have, of course, your three points that we talked about yesterday. Make sure you summarize. Make sure you, it's objection-free. Make sure you, say, you ask questions like, can you see? Is it clear? Does it make sense? Okay. Number two, how to make decisions. This is the second page. Number f the first one, you must stimulate them intellectually, right, mentally. Number two, this is where you're, we have to touch them spiritually. This is where convi conviction must settle in. Realizing right from wrong based on the Bible. And then this is where you ask the questions, do you believe, Mr. Johnson's? Do you sense that God is calling you? This is where you are trying to fish out a decision spiritually. You're trying to see if they have been convicted. Are you convicted that this is right from the Bible? Number three, desire. Number two is conviction. Sorry, two is conviction. Number three is desire. Number three is desire. And this is where you touch their hearts um, emotionally. This is where you what we call in uh, canvassing, we fan the flame. You see there's an interest somewhere and, and, and you fan that flame. You know when you're, you're building a fire, many of you, I'm sure you've been camping and you're playing with sparks or matches and you get a little flame and it finally catches and, and what do you do? You're fanning the flame, right? That's what needs to happen when it comes to a Bible study. Maybe for point number one, Mrs. Johnson wasn't interested. Point number two, Oh, really? The Bible says that? Yeah, yeah, yes, Mrs. Johnson. And you, and you make sure to fan that flame, whatever she's interested in, fan that desire. Wherever she shows that interest, that's what you want to do. Uh, and, of course, the last one. The last one is touching them physically, in a sense. Um, it, it, it's um, helping them make a decision, and, and this involves them doing something physically. That's why 
If you've been doing an evangelistic series, for those of you who want to accept Jesus for your first time, why don't you stand? What you're doing is they have been touched emotionally, they've been touched intellectually, they've been touched spiritually. So the last thing now is for those of you who want to accept Jesus, how many of you want to stand? For those of you who are struggling with sin in your life, how many of you, by the raise of your hands, you want special prayer? Do you understand how this how that is helping solidify a decision. That's why evangelists do those things. And then you want to finally ask, will you commit to, this is the most important thing, this is the appeal. Will you commit to doing this? Will you commit to reading your Bible every day? And of course, the last one, is it your desire to follow Jesus in this? So the last one is action. Get into that. Last one is action. All right, and of course, um, uh, we have this quote, Evangelism, page 296. It says, Let your preaching be short and right to the point. And then at the proper time, what are we to do, everyone? Call for a decision. The most important thing that we can do when we give a Bible study, when we share a sermon, a message, is to call for a decision. That is the most important thing. If any of you have canvassed before, 70% of the sale is the close. Make sure you close hard. Make sure you don't hold anything back. Make sure that you show confidence in Christ, and people will make that decision. All right. How many of you want to try these things now? All right. All right. Praise God. All right. Let's go ahead and uh, have a word of prayer, and we can have a short break. Thank you, God, for the things that we can learn. Thank you again for being here in our midst. Thank you for being our teacher. Thank you for your method of Bible study. We thank you, God, that we have the privilege to work with you, to be co-workers. You could have called angels. You could have called the apostles of old. But you call us, the most degenerate generation. You called us. Thank you for the privilege I pray that now that we will be able to impact the lives of others by implementing this. We love you, God, and can't wait to see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.